morning. Christine. We're going to get into worship, but first I wanted to read from a psalm out of 1 Chronicles. It says, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the people. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods. For all gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of, of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord uh, glory due to his name. Bring an offering. Come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. Tremble before him, all the earth. Uh, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar in all it contains. Let the field exult in all that's in it. Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord. For he is coming to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Then say, save us, O God, of our salvation, and gather us from, gather us and deliver us from the nations, to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Be blessed, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. So, if you guys want to stand this morning. We are going to worship God in, uh, in this thought. Let all the other names fade away Until there's only you Let all the other names fade away Until there's only you Let all the other names fade away God, until there's only you until there's only you Let all the other names fade away Until there's only you Let all the other names fade away Until there's only you Let all the other names fade away Until there's only you Until there's only you until there's only you Until there's only you At your name The mountains shake and crumble Oceans roar and tumble At your name The angels bow down The earth will rejoice Your people cry out Lord of all the earth We shout your name We'll shout your name Fill 
saying to Timothy. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the, treas the treasures of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Um, I am a fisherman by trade, so uh, in my world, it's usually feast or famine. Like, we're either basically rich or poor. There's either usually a lot of fish 
or, or none. Uh, so this, this verse hits home because God isn't that way. He is stable through, through all the time. So for me, um, you know, giving, being generous, uh, supporting this ministry has been something that has helped me put God above money. I know I've probably said this before, but, but, you know, money's going to come and go and God isn't. So this, you know, anything you put above God just becomes another idol. So this, this is an act that is hard sometimes, but it's, it's, it's putting God in his place. It's demoting the value of money and it's putting God where he needs to be. So, um, so let me pray for the, for the offering. Father, I just want to thank you for being the most stable thing in our lives. Lord, everything here is going to come and go. We didn't, we didn't bring anything into this life, and we're not going to take anything when we come home. Father, I just want to thank you for being such a good dad to us. Father, Father, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are here. You're moving in our midst. I worship you. I worship you. You are here. You're working in this place. I worship you, I worship you, cause you are way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are, you're our way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the Touching every heart, I worship you. I worship you. You are here, you're healing every heart. I worship you. I worship you. You are here, you're turning life.
So we pour out our praise to you all. 
that Jesus is here, don't you? If he's not here, there's no reason for us to gather or to worship. We might as well go to a lecture on the geology of the coastal mountains or something like that. But we're here because he is here and he promised in his word that where we're gathered in his name, there he is right in the middle of us. And I really loved hearing the children sing. I stopped singing just so I could listen to them. And they were singing with all their heart. That was a big blessing. Thank you, boys and girls. Big blessing. We are going to pray in just a moment. Um, you can be seated, by the way. Good job. Let's just thank the Lord in prayer for his presence here today. And uh, we've come to hear from him, and I hope that you have a receptive heart that you want to hear from Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being right here. And you know each and every one of us so personally and intimately, and you know what we need to hear. And we ask that you would just open up our hearts so that we could hear your voice. And help us to always know you better, Lord, and grow in our depth of understanding as to who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So I'd like to begin with something today that um, really isn't my message or sermon. So this is kind of like a bonus addition to that, if you would call it that. But I just had it on my heart. I just needed to share this. It's only, only going to take a few minutes. But you know, in the first psalm, in the first three verses, it talks about meditating on God's word. And it says that if we meditate on God's word, now it talks about day and night, which means continually. If we're continually meditating on the word of God, it says these things are going to happen. And that is you're going to be like a tree planted by the water. And you are going to prosper and you're going to bear fruit and everything you do is going to succeed. So when I read that verse, I said, that's what I want to be. I want to be like that tree planted by the water. I want to be a person who prospers in my spirit and in my body and in every way in my life. And I want the things that I do to succeed. And the way to do that, the word of God says, is if we meditate on his word. And I don't think that most of the time we really understand meditating on God's word, and I like to call it engaging with the word of God. So if the word of God has the power to change our lives in that kind of way so that we can prosper and that we can live spiritually, then we know that the word of God has, has power within it. In fact, there's a verse of scripture, Hebrews 4.12, that says the word of God is alive. It is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. So when it says that the word of God is alive and it is active, that should tell us that the word of God is vastly different than any other book. So this is not like a novel. It's not Zorro or Moby Dick or something else like that. These words are God-breathed. They are alive, and because they're alive, we need to interact with the alive part of the Word of God. 
because the Holy Spirit has breathed life into it. So the Holy Spirit can breathe life into us as we begin to read the Word of God. Now, I don't know if you ever heard of the, of the science experiment when you get two tuning forks of the same note or tone and you strike one and it begins to vibrate as you strike a tuning fork and it begins to sound its sound and its note. But if you hold the other tuning fork close to it, the other one will begin to vibrate too, even though it's never been struck. It's because it's come into proximity with it and the vibration of one or the sound of one begins to interact with the other to produce the same thing. And that's what the word of God does is that the Holy Spirit who makes the word of God alive wants to interact with the Holy Spirit within us and wants us to be in tune with what God is saying. And his word does that. His word is the avenue. It is the open door for us to allow the Holy Spirit to get us in tune with him. You know, if somebody is panicked, like a child who's just really panicked or afraid or something has happened and they're hyperventilating, you might just take them and say to that child, look at me, look at me in the eyes, and then I want you to breathe with me. Breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. As you do that, you're modulating their breathing. They're gonna match your breath, and it's a way of changing what is happening within them right now. The Word of God does the very same thing. If we will match what the word of God in its active and living state is doing and saying to us, if we meditate upon the word and let it begin to absorb into us, then our life, the rhythm of our life, our spirit, our thoughts, our thought processes, all of it will be changed because we're beginning to keep in step with the rhythm of the word of God and with the Holy Spirit. It is, I'm just reminded of those words in the psalm, deep calls to deep. It's the Holy Spirit calling to the Holy Spirit in us. The word of God and its truth speaking deep into our hearts. Now, the way that we meditate on God's word is we don't just read it. And I know that many times in devotions, we might take a passage of scripture and we might read it and we say, wow, that's wonderful. You might even pray the word, which is another step, and that's, that's a good thing to do, is to begin to pray the word and make it personal to you. But to meditate on the word is that we're gonna to have to give it a little more thought. We're gonna to have to be present with God and the word of God. So it's not just reading, we know that he's there and he wants to speak to us through the word of God. So it becomes a conversation. So for example, if I take a scripture that we should all know, which is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and I'm probably, I memorized it so long ago, in my life it's probably King James, I don't know what it is, but it's a trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. So if we were to begin to take a truth like that in scripture, something God breathed life into and then just begin to interact or engage with the word of God and we say, well, first of all, it says trust in the Lord. And the way we interact with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God is to ask questions. And so we could say, Lord, in what ways am I not trusting you? Because your Word asked me to trust you. How am I not trusting you? Or what ways am I trusting you? And what things am I not trusting you with? And how can I build more trust 
in you in my life? And why is it that I'm weak in trust in a certain area? And so those, that is an interacting, that's a conversation. So you're talking to God and you're asking him to speak to your heart. And it not only says trust in the Lord, it says trust in the Lord with all your heart. So what part of my heart have I not given to God in full trust? And it might show itself in mere image in parts of my life. So maybe I have trusted God with my children and my family, but I've not trusted him with my job or not trusted him with my finances. In what ways have I not fully engaged my heart so that I could say that I will trust in him with all of my heart? Do you see what I'm beginning to say? That this becomes a conversation and we're only taking this part of one passage of scripture. This can happen every day with every part of scripture that you read. The next phrase says, lean not on your own understanding, or do not lean or depend on your own understanding. So again, we ask questions and we say, Holy Spirit, how am I not? How am I not listening to you? And instead, how am I just leaning on what I already know? On my own understanding of things, what I see with my eyes, what I hear with my ears, what other people tell me, how am I to let, put that down and put that aside, what I know, so that I could hear what you know, what you have to say. So if I'm not leaning on my own understanding for you to direct my paths, if I'm not just writing down on a piece of paper the pros and cons of making a decision of doing something, that's leaning on my own understanding. But what if I throw that piece of paper out the window and I say, Lord, it's not about my own understanding. It's about you directing my path. So, Lord, I need your understanding. I need your wisdom. And I need it simple because I'm a simple person, Lord. I need it a step at a time. I need you to tell me what the next step is because you're guiding my path. You see what I'm saying as we're engaging in the word of God? If we did this, then our lives would begin to show what Psalm 1 says. And that is we would be like the trees planted by the water and our leaves are not going to wither and we're going to bear fruit in season and everything we do is going to prosper. It's because we are continually meditating on God's word, interacting with the word of God. This is really powerful. And someone needed to hear that and that's why the Lord gave it to me today. So... This is what the Lord put on my heart for us today in my message. I'd like to begin with a passage of scripture with the book of Revelation chapter 2 verse 17. Now this is the part of scripture, excuse me, where um, the Lord Jesus is speaking to his churches. And let me just read it. It says, anyone who hear with ears to hear must listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So if you have ears, Jesus is saying, listen up. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven, right? And I will give to each one a white stone and on that stone will be engraved a new name 
that no one understands except the one who receives it. Now in my pocket I have a white stone, which I found in my garden. This is the kind of scripture that makes you want to be a Bible student, to say, oh Lord, there's just so much in this. It sounds awesome, but what does it mean? What does it mean that you're going to give us the manna that has been hidden away in heaven? And what does it mean that you're going to give to each of us a white stone? And on that stone will be a new name, not the name that we've been using all the time in our lifetime, the name our parents gave us, the nicknames others have given us. You're going to give us a brand new name. And that name is going to be so special and personal that it's going to be between you and me. And no one else will know that name. Or not that they won't know it, but they won't understand the meaning of why you're giving me this new name. It shows us that God cares about names. And that names speak of identity. So when he gives us a new name, he's speaking of the identity that he wants to give us. And God's going to define that identity by giving us that new name in heaven. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't, always, that he doesn't already know that name and call you by that name in his own heart. And that name will be revealed on a white stone. We're going to get back to this later, but I want you to understand that sometimes we do not understand scripture because we do not understand historical context. We don't understand the culture of the day. We don't understand certain things. And because we don't understand that, to us, they're just words. They're, they don't have much meaning. It would be the same as if you were to speak to someone who comes from another region of our United States, let's say the desert. Well, I was born in the desert of Arizona. So if you take somebody from the desert of Arizona and bring them out here, then you all talk a different lingo. So you have certain things you all know about. You all know about the terms having to do with the rivers and, and with the ocean and with the fishermen and with the loggers and the hills and especially the loggers. They have their own lingo of what they call everything that they do and their own names for each person and what job that person does, right? And so that is a huge mystery to someone who comes from out of our region and just doesn't understand it. So if the Bible were written in, let's say, Napa language, the logging language, then how would somebody else understand it unless they really knew the culture, right? And what we're talking about. So if Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, talked about a choke setter, somebody's going to say, what is that? And why is that important to this passage? It's the same way. It's historical. We need to understand sometimes the context to understand what God is saying. Now, from time to time, I learn some of these new things, and I learn some of the culture, and it gives me a deeper understanding of Scripture. And recently I heard of something, and I want to share it with you, because it sheds light on a certain passage of Scripture that we're all familiar with. Back in first century Israel, now that was during the time that Jesus lived and walked on the earth, 
The Jewish people had their towns and their settlements, but they also lived among other Gentile peoples too that were scattered about. So the Jewish people were concentrated in a certain place, but not far away were the Samaritans and not far away from them to the north were also the Syrians. And they all had their own names for the peoples and all the people's customs and religions were different than the Jewish people. And the Jewish people were very tight knit and they had a, a moral code which came from the word of God and they had traditions in the way that they should live and did things and they, those were different than the traditions of the Gentile peoples. Now, Jewish towns and cities had a gate. Now, it wasn't necessarily like every town was a walled city and every walled city had a gate or a door that opened and closed. And it came from ancient times when people would fortify their cities. And sometimes those fortifications were just three foot walls, but they would have a small village and they would take all the stones and they would build three foot walls around the whole little settlement. And that was their way of defending themselves in case an enemy came. At least they had something to, to be a roadblock or to hide behind or to fight from behind in order to, to do that. But every city had an entrance and they called that the gate of the city, the, the main entryway into that town. And in most of those towns, there were elders and this was, this was something that was established from long ago and you'll read it in the Bible, why people went to the gates of the city to, to, to do business or to interact with leaders or to have things judged. All of this happened at the city gates because there were elders who sat at the city gates. And it was the same in Jesus' day that there were elders who were at the entrance of the city and they held that custom. And those elders were mostly old guys. And those old guys had a little bit of gray in their beard or a lot of gray. And they had a lot of life experience. They had a lot of practical wisdom. They had knowledge of the laws of God and the laws of the land, and they had the respect of the people. And so the people would come to them when they had disputes. And if they did something like if somebody bought or sold something, they would do it in front of the elders so the elders could be a witness to the transaction that happened. So there was always these witnesses that were there. Now, the elders were people watchers, and they were excellent judges of character because they lived so long, and they knew all the families of the town, and they knew the people, so they were excellent judges of character, and they were great advice givers. In fact, if you need advice, just find some old guys, get them together. They're going to have lots of good advice for you because they've lived a lot of life. And they themselves have fallen into many potholes and traps, and they can tell you how to avoid those. Amen. Now, as I said, the elders were the peeper watchers, and don't underestimate them, because they really have been there and they've done that. Now, in those days when a young man received their inheritance, uh, it wasn't as if it was today. Like today, many people think that maybe when their parents die, they're going to get an inheritance if there is an inheritance. But we know also the, there are people with wealth, perhaps, who might give people inheritance even before they die. It's just a part of what they're going to do. But in Jesus' day, the inheritance was given to 
a, a young man, for example, when he was ready to launch out on his own away from the family and just start his own family. So that inheritance was given to him. It could, the inheritance could be a piece of property or it could be monetary, but it was meant for him to buy the property, to build the house, and when he was ready with the house, then he could marry a wife because you can't marry a wife if you don't have a house for that wife to come to because they're not going to live with the in-laws. That's not going to be a happy situation. And so this was the idea that the young man would get his inheritance and then he would build a life for himself and he would create stability so that he could be married. But some young men couldn't resist the temptation of having a sudden pocket full of money. Now, I'm sure you've heard of that, that some people on payday just go wild, right? Because all of a sudden they have, they have money pocket full of cash for a young man, a little bit of freedom because now they don't live at home, so there's not all these watching eyes over them determining what they're doing or not doing. And some of them would leave the village. And they would leave the village to find out what life is like in the outside world. And one of their main curiosities was, what's it like among the Gentiles? You know, people different than us, people who have different traditions. But they also knew that the Gentiles didn't quite have the same moral values that they had in their own communities. And so free of those watchful eyes of everybody in their hometown that knew them, and you know what it's like in a small town, you can't do anything without your relatives finding out because somebody's going to say, oh, I saw so-and-so down here or down there. And so if a kid breaks a window, uh, everybody's going to know who it was because, you know, word's going to get out. Somebody driving by knows exactly who they are, and, and that's what's going to happen. It's going to get back to the parents. You can't hide anything in a small town. But uh, being a young man surrounded by temptation, they might indulge in things that they were never free to do before. Drinking, carousing, gambling, etc. What the Bible might call wanton living. Now, wanton isn't wanton, because wanton is a Chinese delicacy, and wanton is spelled a little bit different, it has nothing to do with the Chinese and nothing to do with food. So, wanton living is sexually unrestrained, lewd, excessive living. So somebody who is just says, I am going to just let all barriers be gone. I, I'm just going to let my own lust take over. And that kind of lifestyle meant that usually their money would be gone pretty fast. It's surprising how fast money goes when you're wasting it on sin, right? So the young man would become destitute and his pockets were empty and all of his newfound friends would be gone and would abandon him because friends are only around when you can buy them drinks or do them favors or things like that. So then what he had left was to swallow his pride and to go back home hanging his head in shame saying, I know what I was supposed to do and I didn't do it and now I have nothing so I need to come back home. But when he walked into the town, or on his way into the town, those old guys sitting by the gate 
would spit out their coffee and would say, hold on there, young man. Or, you know, because they knew that he left town and they see that he looks kind of rough and would kind of question him and they would say, no, I don't think we should just let you waltz right in. Because you see, the Jewish people were very careful about not being polluted by the outside world. And if somebody had been polluted by the outside world, them coming in could affect other people and, and the whole culture. And so they were, they were careful about this. But the elders would put into practice an old tradition, and it was called kezazah in the Hebrew, which means the cutting off. And they would send a message to his family and let them know that he was back. Now, under this tradition, it was expected that the young man's father would sit at home and he would be silent. He would not start talking or doing anything about the news that his son had come home. And he would be waiting for his son's arrival. So that was a time for that father to sit and to think about everything that was just about to happen. And you fathers know what that's like when you have to have a talk with your children and you're thinking about what you're going to say, what you're going to do, what you're going to decide. That's what the father would do. But under this tradition, the mother, she was able to leave home, to go to be with her son. She would usually run to her son. And she would embrace him and kiss him because he'd been gone a long time. There'd been no news, no emails, texts, nothing. <laughs> No phone calls, so she would go running to him because that's what mothers do. Mothers have this endless supply of love. And thank God for mother's love because that's really what's going to be reflected here, that acceptance. Mothers know when their young ones do wrong, but they love them in spite of it. They love them in spite of it. They can't not love them. And that kind of love and acceptance is a healing love and acceptance. Uh, it really does heal wrongs that take place. It causes a repentance to happen in people's lives when you have that kind of love. So the mother was able to run to her child, walk with him home so he doesn't walk alone. And that's another thing that mothers can do is they always show that you're not alone, that I'm always here. You can always call. If you're hungry, you can always come home. You may not be able to live here, but if you're starving, come home. We'll have food for you. Now, if his father refused to hear him out, or if his father rejected his plea for forgiveness, for squandering the inheritance and defiling himself with sin, then the men of the city, they would take a clay jar or a clay pot, and in the presence of that young man, they would smash it on the ground until it broke to pieces. And that was the signaling that he had broken something and that he would be cut off from his family and from his town. So that symbolic act of the breaking was the thing that showed him the, the judgment so to speak, that was upon him.
he was cut off. Now, this was a moment of great shame for that young man because by that time, probably a small crowd of people had gathered to find out what's going to happen to so-and-so, right? He's back. What's going to happen to so-and-so? And to have the clay pot broken in the presence of everyone showed just what shame would come and what rejection was upon him. So he had publicly had to confess his sin, yet at the same time, his payment was rejection and shame. And so that's a sad story and a sad tradition. But I want to tell you that this tradition kind of thing is alive and well in our world today. There are certain religious sects and other uh, cultures that do the very same thing that I'm talking about here today. That if somebody goes outside of their community and does things the community doesn't appreciate, they are shunned and their parents don't even speak to them. That happens in certain communities even here in America. And so it's not that this is a foreign concept or not something that doesn't happen in the world in which we live. It is great rejection that happens and the people feel orphaned because they are totally cut off from the people they know and the family that they had as if they, and now it's as if they have no family. And I suppose that this breaking of the pottery symbolized that the young man had broken trust, that he had sinned against his father and God, and not only shattering trust, but the covenant that he had as a young Israelite with God and his family, breaking hearts in the process. So it was a, a harsh judgment, but an ultimate stroke of shame and rejection to the young man. And knowing this, just knowing this little piece of history gives new meaning to a parable that Jesus told us. And some of you are already guessing about that parable. And that's the parable of the lost son, sometimes called the parable of the prodigal son, which is in Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 11. Now, Jesus, when he spoke the parable to the people who were listening, they knew the tradition of the breaking of the jar the cutting off of people, the shunning of people, the turning them away. And when Jesus was telling the story of the young man who went out from his own family to live amongst the Gentiles, living in sin and immorality, and squandering his inheritance in while living in sin, the people fully expected that the story of Jesus would end with this person's judgment, shame, and rejection. And you know, in Jesus' story, in his parable, the young man tried to find a way to earn back his inheritance so that he wouldn't be shamed. And he probably thought to himself, if I could get the money back, then I'm okay. But there was a famine in the land, and the only job he could find was feeding pigs, and it was such a poor job that it didn't even feed him. And he was hungry, and he was destitute. And he finally came to a point of starving and saying, my only choice is to go home and to face the music. So Jesus is telling the story, and everybody is thinking, yes, he's going to go home, and he's going to face the music. And this young man knew he only had one chance, and that is, will my father listen to me? And he said, if my father's going to listen to me, then 
this is the way that I need to present my case. He would confess his sin to his father, saying, I've sinned against you, I've sinned against God. And we read in Luke chapter 15, verse 17 to 20, the words of Jesus in the parable. And Jesus said that when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to my father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so that was his strategy. His strategy was, I know that I've done the unthinkable. And I don't expect you to receive me back as a son. But could you just bring me back as one of your hired servants? And so he got up and he went to his father. So he thought that this request would be his only hope. And that because it was his only hope, he was hanging on to the thread that his father wouldn't just be silent and reject him, but his father would listen to him and forgive him. So in the parable, in Jesus' parable, the father was not silent. There was no anger. There was no breaking of pottery. Instead, the scripture says in Luke 15, 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Can you see how the father in Jesus's parable is breaking the tradition and not just staying at home stoically, but he's doing what a mother would do, running to his son, embracing him, kissing him, because he's filled with compassion and love for his son. And Jesus is saying, this is what my heavenly father feels about you. This is how my heavenly father sees you. It doesn't matter where you've been, what sin you have been doing, how much of life you have lost, how much you have wasted or surrendered to your own flesh or lust, if you come back to the Father, this is the way the Father is going to receive you, with open arms. Now, in Jesus' parable, the Father's reaction breaks not only tradition, but it also breaks the fear in the young man's heart that, yes, his Father at least is, is going to probably listen to him. So he begins to explain to his father what he had rehearsed all along to say, and that is that he asked for forgiveness for his sins, but he just doesn't want to be a son, he wants to be a servant. But in Jesus' parable, the answer to that is that the father will hear nothing of it. Of course he's a son. And so in Luke 15, 22, he says, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. See, the son was not rejected, he was welcomed back. And he was welcomed back as a true son. And the father covered 
the rags of sin with a new garment, a new robe, and showed him how much he was a son and a member of the family, not a second-class member, by giving him a ring. And so finally, in Jesus' parable, the father expresses his true motivation for everything that he'd done toward his son. In verse 24, he says, For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Now think of the impact this would have had on Jesus' listeners when they heard the end of this story. So instead of a father saying to his son, you are dead to me and to this family and will never speak to you again. Instead, the father is celebrating because his son was dead and now he's alive. He was lost. We didn't know where he was, what he was doing, how he was doing, whether he was dead or alive, but we love and care for him and he's here now. He was lost and now he's found. So Jesus told this parable to show that God is not a father who rejects or who cuts off people in shame or who shames people or to keep a shame name on a person so that they keep living out that shame because of that shame name. God will accept everyone who comes back to him asking for mercy and forgiveness. You know, if you don't take that step to leave where you are and to come and actually ask for that mercy or forgiveness, how can he embrace you? How can he kiss you? How can he welcome you back? It's all in you taking those steps, like the young man in the parable, to walk back to the Father. If you're at a place in your life where you know that you're far from Father God, he's inviting you to, through the truth of his word to start taking steps in your life to walk back to him. He doesn't want you to try to clean yourself up first. That's not what he does when he receives back a son that he loves. He's going to receive you with your sinful rags and everything that comes with it. But he's going to begin to change all of that. He's going to wash your feet and put new sandals on. He is going to remove your rags and give you a new robe, the righteousness of Jesus, the clothing of forgiveness. And he's not going to disown you no matter how much you've sinned. You know, some people hold back from walking toward God because they think I've gone too far, I've done too much. God will never accept me, but that's not the truth at all. God will receive you. God will forgive you and take you back. That's why Jesus told this story, to show you that he is a forgiving God. He's not gonna disown you. He wants you home as a son or daughter in his household. Why do we refuse to believe in the love and forgiveness of God? And why do we hold on to the shame of the past and the shame of what has happened? Many of you are Christians today. You have given your life to Jesus, but you still hold on to the shame of your past. In your eyes and in your mind, you're that young man walking into town with your head hanging low because 
you know what you've done and they know what you've done and you feel the same even though Jesus has forgiven you. And this is a message for us people of God. There are going to be people who are going to be walking toward our Heavenly Father and their life is all messed up and their life is in tatters. And you may know them and you may know that. They may even have offended you. But when they walk into this place or if they walk toward the Heavenly Father, wherever they are, you'll need to be like the household that reflects the love of the Father and receives them in the same way Jesus does. If you don't receive them the same way Jesus does, they're going to get a strong message from you, the body of Christ, and that message will be that they're not good enough to be here among you. And that's not the case at all. None of us are good enough to be here. If all of our stories were plastered on a screen, we'd all be ashamed. None of us are good enough to be here. But God has given us the responsibility of being His arms opening wide to receive those that He's receiving. We're just mirroring what He's doing. We're saying what He's saying. We're glad you're home. You belong here. This is where you'll find love and acceptance. You know, some people do hold on to hardships of the past as well as sins or shame of the past. There, was a, there is a story in the book of Ruth. And in the book of Ruth, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, has some setbacks. First, her husband dies. Then her two sons die. And all she has is two daughters-in-law. And she's very bitter about that. And what she says in one verse in Ruth, Ruth 1.13, is that the Lord's hand is turned against me. So do you see how she's feeling in her heart? God's not with me. He's not loving me. He's not for me. God's hand is against me. And then in another verse, when she comes back home to her people, she says, why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. She's blaming God. You know, God gets blamed for so much that he doesn't do. If somebody's repairing a roof and slips and falls off and injures themselves badly, how can we say God pushed them off the roof and did this to them? God is blamed for so many things he didn't do. It's just life. Life is full of hazards. We are not perfect human beings with perfect bodies that live forever. They wear down. They get sick. This is a temporary dwelling for us. God's not to blame, but Naomi was blaming God. And in Ruth 1.20, she told the people, don't call me Naomi. You know, Naomi is a name that means pleasant. So she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. She told them, call me Mara, and Mara means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Do you see how this person was holding on to bitterness so much she wanted to be known by the bitterness that had surrounded her life? She wasn't willing to let go. I invite you to read the story of Ruth because things changed for Naomi. 
God's good to Naomi. God gives her the love of a daughter-in-law who will not leave her side. And that love is healing to her. And oftentimes God uses us, God uses you and me to heal other people's bitterness and shame. He uses our love, our devotion to them, our friendship, our good words and encouragement to help the other person get out of that pit that they're in and back up in the daylight and on solid ground. You are a part of that. God wants to use you in that ministry. We hold on to bitterness, we hold on to pain, loss, and failure, and sometimes we embrace it as our identity. We say to ourselves, I'm forgotten by God. But Jesus is saying, who told you that? I didn't tell you that. We say, I'm too wounded to be of any good to God. Jesus says, who told you that? You say to yourself, I'm disqualified because of such and such, and Jesus says, who told you that? We say, I'm too old to do much good, and Jesus says, who told you that? Or I'm addicted to sin and I can't get free, and Jesus said, who told you you can't get free? So, friends, this is not the identity that God wants you to have that you've taken upon yourself and in some ways you have to let it go. You have to turn your back on the past because it is the past and realize that in your life God is doing a new thing. And God is in the business of transformation, of changing your life. And accept the new you, don't accept the new you dragging behind you would change the corpse of the old you. You can't live that way. You have to cut that off and not have that hanging over your head. So God's in an exchange program. He's going to exchange what is in your past and give you something in your future. Listen to this beautiful passage of scripture in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 3. And it says, And the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And in verse three it says, to bestow on them, here's the exchange, a crown of beauty instead of ashes. You know what ashes represented in the Bible? Just read the book of Job and you'll see what ashes represent. When Job lost everything, he went to the ash pile of the house, he sat down in the ashes, threw them on top of his head, and just sat there mourning all that he had lost. God's in an exchange program. He's gonna pick you up from that ash pile. He's gonna wash you off and he's gonna put a crown upon your head. It says here, the oil of joy instead of mourning. The oil of joy instead of mourning. The prophet Samuel was very close to King Saul. And when King Saul died, the prophet Samuel was just in, in the depths of depression and couldn't stop mourning the loss of Saul. Because he'd been the one to anoint Saul as king and to pour the oil on his head by the Lord's direction and to be his spiritual counselor, and now Saul was dead. 
And there was a point in time when God said this to Saul. I mean, to Samuel. He said, why do you mourn for Saul? Pick yourself up and take your horn of oil because I have someone else that I have chosen. And God is saying the same thing to us. Why do you keep mourning for what you've lost? I have something new for you. Walk with me forward in the plan that I have for your life. And then it also says in this passage, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. I like that it says a spirit of despair, not just an attitude of despair, but sometimes we're influenced by the enemy who wants to bring upon us hopelessness, despair, fear, whatever the enemy wants to put upon us, but he is going to give us a garment of praise. You know, praise recognizes God is real. He is powerful. He is present. He is glorious, and praise can overcome so many things. Praise breaks the power of the enemy. Begin to praise him in your own life. And then, in this passage, God reveals his plan for you. They, speaking of you, those who went through his exchange program, will be called oaks of righteousness. There's that tree again, planted by the water, thriving oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. He wants to prosper you. He wants to prosper you in every way, spiritually, physically, every way for his glory. It's to his glory that he prosper you. Now remember that verse of scripture in 2 Revelation 2.17. Let's talk about the stone, the white stone. It was a custom of the day that if a person had committed a crime and went to court and the court made a decision on their guilt or innocence, that decision of their guilt or innocence was revealed by the giving of a stone to that person. If they were given a white stone, they were innocent, declared innocent. And it was given to them as proof that the court had made a decision. So they could prove that they were innocent because they were given a white stone. If they were declared guilty, they would be given a dark stone. So when God gives you a white stone in heaven, he is saying he's declared that all your guilt is gone, that you are totally innocent of everything. You will arrive in heaven, him giving you a stone saying, I don't care what happened in all of your lifetime, you are mine, you are forgiven, and here is my white stone to tell you that you are forgiven. And you have a new identity. And so I've written on this white stone, your new identity. The thing that I planned for you from the foundations of the earth, the thing I wrote in your book before you were even born, your destiny in me is written on this stone which I give to you. Now, in this passage of scripture in Revelation chapter two, 
that white stone tells us we're not condemned. For all eternity, the judge of the universe tells us that we're forgiven. But what about the hidden manna? What about that part of the scripture that says that he will give us the hidden manna from heaven, if you remember? Revelation says the hidden manna from heaven. Well, let me read John 6, 48 through 51. This is Jesus speaking. So Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness and they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Do you see how Jesus tied together him being the bread of life to the manna that was given to God's people? And he was saying that the manna God gave to people sustained them for a while, but they died eventually. But I'm the bread of life, and if you eat this manna, which came down from heaven, which kind of mirrors the wording of Revelation chapter 2, the manna hidden in heaven, if you eat this manna, then you're going to live forever. Because I am the life of the world. So the hidden manna is Jesus. For, for thousands of years in human existence, God had a plan of salvation for people, but they didn't know who the hidden manna was until Jesus revealed himself and God sent him to this earth. And then we could see that. We could see who the hidden manna was. It was Jesus who is hidden no longer. This isn't on a slide, but I'd like to read it to you. It's a beautiful passage of scripture that we're going to close with. It's from 1 John chapter 1. And Kayla, if you'd come, please. And just listen to the words. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to make your joy complete. Our Jesus, the manna from heaven was hidden but he came so that we could see him with our eyes, touch him with our hands, hear him with our ears. And he was to us the message of heaven, the word of life. Jesus said, I don't say anything that I don't hear my father say. So when Jesus told you how much the Father loves you, he was hearing directly from heaven. When he says, if you'll just believe in me, then my Father and I will make our home with you. You'll be part of our household. 
and I'm knocking on the door of your life and I want to come in not to mess you up. I want to come in to sit down at your table and have a meal with you. I want you to know that I'm the same Jesus that walked this earth and that barbecued fish on the beach for my friends. I want you to know that I'm the same Jesus who sat down to dinner and I broke the bread and I shared it with you, with you all. That's the Jesus I am. And I want you to be a part of that. I want you always to be at my table. And friends, what a privilege it is for us to know him as our savior and to know that someday a white stone with a new name and the person who was the hidden manna will be standing right before us for our eyes to see again and our hands to touch. And he'll be welcoming us into that eternal heavenly kingdom because life is more than just life on this earth because even if we live to be a ripe old age, it's just a drop in the bucket to eternity, but he wants us to be with him forever. And forever means forever. So I'd just like to pray with you if you'd bow your heads, please. Lord Jesus, if there's anyone in this room or hearing online who feels they're far from you, and are hanging their head in shame or holding on to the shame of the past, I pray that you speak to their hearts so clearly right now and to give them a new invitation to come back home, to come back to you. And I thank you, Jesus, that you're holding out forgiving arms. You don't hold grudges. In fact, you erase, you erase it all, you wash it all away. And I pray, Lord, that those hearing your invitation that need to respond to it will respond, Lord. And for the rest of us, I pray that you help us to be a mirror image of who you are, the loving Father that runs to those that have been prodigals the loving Father that embraces them and celebrates that they're where they really belong, the loving Father that ignores filthy rags and does everything we can to clothe them in new clothes that match their new life. If you're here today, well, our heads are bowed and you want to come to Jesus and accept his invitation will you just raise your hand for me and say yes that's that's me I feel like I'm far away but I want to be close to Jesus thank you Lord Jesus Let's stand right now.
Can you just thank him for a moment? Can you just thank him for what he's done for you, for what he means to you, for the love that he continually gives to you? Just in your own words or in your own heart, just let there be thankfulness this, this moment. It's a miracle he doesn't turn us away. It's the greatest love that embraces us just as we are. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We're so grateful, Lord. So grateful. Thank you all for being here today. If you want to stay just to spend a few moments in worship, you can. Otherwise, have a great day. And remember that Jesus walks with you. And God loves you with an everlasting love. God bless you. Receive his free.